The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Bill Bonner. He is the chairman of Agora Company. He is also the editor of The Diary of a Rogue Economist. And he's also the author of a new book called Hormageddon. Welcome to the show, Bill. Uh, Thank you. It's a pleasure being with you. Let's just start with your background. You've been at this for a long time. But just for people who have not heard about you, give your your background a little bit. Well, I've been a, a financial publisher, analyst, writer, commentator, and so on for the last 35 years. And uh, that's really what I also have been building a business, and the business is doing financial financial analysis. And uh, I left the U.S. about uh, 15 years ago and, and uh, took the show on the road, and we set up businesses all over the world. We have now 10 subsidiary businesses outside the U.S. where we do essentially the same thing, which is independent stock market analysis, not all stocks, but mostly stock market analysis, and totally independent of uh, Wall Street. We don't sell, we don't buy, we just offer opinions. Very. let's just talk about your book uh, a little bit. It's, it's called Hormageddon, How Too Much of a Good Thing Leads to Disaster, and you've got a picture of a nuclear explosion. Uh, I guess it looks like a nuclear explosion in the beginning. Um, just kind of give me a, we're going to get into more detail, but kind of give me the overall view as to why you wanted to do this book and what is the overall point you're trying to make about it? Well, the overall point is that things do not follow from our desires. So uh, people imagine that we always sit down and we always experiment with things and then we look at the results and we decide what to do going forward. In fact, you know, on election day, they figure that that's what they do. They just look at the, the candidates and take the best alternative based upon what they know. And that kind of knowing regard, that kind of conscious effort to think through what is the best alternative going forward is how the future uh, 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 un, unravels itself. But it's not true. It doesn't work that way at all. In fact, what happens is there are patterns to history, and those patterns, when, you're, when you get in them, it doesn't really matter what you think, because your thoughts are formed by the pattern itself. So you end up doing things which are really, really very stupid often, and often disastrous, even though, you know, you, 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 know, you would... If you were sat down and thought about it at the time, you'd say, no, this doesn't really make any sense. But uh, you know, I give in my book, for example, the uh, example of, uh, the, of Germany during World War II, where they set themselves on a course and which was obviously disastrous. It was disastrous for Germany as of, you know, by 1943, but the war was effectively over. There was no way that Germany could win that war, and yet they kept going for another two years until they were totally, totally smashed, beaten, destroyed, and they lost everything they sought out, they had intended to get from the war. Well, you, you have to ask, well, why did they do that? It didn't make any sense. Even their top generals and strategists in 1943 were saying, there's no 
way to win this war, but they just continued going. It was because they were already in motion. And that's the idea of Hormageddon. Now, once you get in motion, going somewhere in this particular phenomenon takes hold of you, you can't think your way out of it. What would be an example of that today? We'll have many, but what would be one example today of a direction we're going that doesn't make any sense? Well, uh, the, the obvious one is the financial direction. The U.S. now is in the grip of a kind of financial hysteria, a kind of crazy, crazy uh, pattern where more and more people expect more and more from government, and there's less and less way to get it because uh, as you go forward, you, the more you take from uh, a, a, an economy and the more restrictions you put on the economy, the less well the economy works. In fact, there are lots of studies, for example, that show debt itself restrains and reduces the rate of growth in an economy. So you keep, you go further and further in this direction with more people expecting more benefits. And right now, you know, Romney's famous remark about how there were fewer, fewer people, uh, that, uh, there were as many people collecting uh, 40, the 47% benefits. percent you're talking about. <laughs> more than half the voters were collecting benefits. Well, what happens is you get in this pattern where you can't stop it because now the voters all expect something and you can't say, okay, from now we're going to raise your taxes and we're going to cut your benefits because if you do that, you, you're no longer in office. Somebody else has that office and you, you can't stop it. So now the, the Fed, because you, know, you run out of money sooner or later, the Fed, this is happening as we speak in Japan and happening in a dramatic way where the Japanese central bank, having no alternative, is now printing the money that finances the government. This is a disastrous course of action, and anybody who sat back and thought about it would see that it was disastrous, but there's nothing you can do when you're in that mode. At least you think there's nothing you can do. What are some historical precedents for a similar situation where a society got deep into debt and kind of tried to print its way out of it? Would, would the Roman Empire come to mind, or what other times have well, been similar I'd, to I'd that? I'd say practically every society has done that at one time or another. In Rome, it was kind of famous because they, had the, they, had, they didn't have paper money. So what they did instead was, first, they put the miners to work day and night. They had, uh, they had a night shift at the silver mines in, uh, in Spain just to keep the, the silver coming out because they used the silver denarius. And then they started taking the silver out of the denarius. <laughs> this is classic clipping of coinage. And it ended up that in inflation went wild and the empire sort of crumbled from, from within. The financial system went, to, went totally bad. And Diocletian... Well, he did the same thing Richard Nixon did. He, he imposed uh, wage price controls, and those did exactly what they did and for Nixon, nothing. <laughs> they made the situation worse. So it just got worse and worse. But almost every country at one time or another gets into that situation. Sometimes it happens fast and they get over it. And sometimes, but sometimes it's so big, it's so enormous, so there's so many things locked into that pattern, which is what I see today. The whole system where everybody has confidence that the Fed governors and economists running the Fed and economists running the Treasury Department, they think these people know what they're doing, but they're really, they don't really know at all. And they're just, they're humming and faking it and making it up as they go along, just trying to keep up with events. And in fact, Alan Greenspan was, gave a speech just last week uh, down in New Orleans, and uh, people asked him, well, what were you, what were you thinking? Because Greenspan was a famous hard money man back in the 60s. And then he got to Washington, he got on Gerald Ford's uh, Council of Economic Advisors, and then moved to the Fed, and all of a sudden he became 
a very different man. He became somebody who was ready to ready to to manipulate, to control, to use central planning at the heart of the government to try to keep the uh, asset bubble going. And people asked him about that. He said, "Well, you know, when <laughs> when you got a, a job in Washington, you you, you got to play by the Washington rules, and those rules are different. And you got to try to keep the thing going. It's not a." question of what you really think. He said he really didn't think it was such a good idea, but he had to do what he had to do. But everybody gets in that situation, and you end up with, with these kind of Hormageddon disasters. Is the world situation today bigger than ever before as far as the amount of debt that's been created and the potential implosion of all that debt? Well, that's the thing. It's unbelievably different. Nothing like this has ever happened before in the history of humankind, because never before in the history of humankind had people had so much faith, faith in the system. And now they have so much faith that there's actually $100 trillion worth of debt outstanding in the whole world. And this is made possible, of course, a lot of things. I'm just writing about this. I was trying to figure out, how did this all happen? And it's made possible by lots of different things, but one of the key things was in 1971, they took the gold out of the dollar. And as soon as you say that, people say, oh, well, you're a gold bug, you know, you're some kind of fanatic or something. But it's nothing to do with being a gold bug, it's just that gold was limited. And because it was limited, you couldn't have unlimited credit. You could only have credit to the extent that you were able to get gold, and gold increased only at 2% per year. But paper money can increase much, much faster. And so once they had taken the gold out of the system and you had a pure paper system, then you could, little by little, gradually at first, and, you know, as Hemingway mentions, one of his characters went broke. And he said, how did he go broke? Well, he went broke gradually and then suddenly. <laughs> and that's what mm -hmm. happens because gradually you have a buildup in credit. And credit since 1971 is has gone up 50 times. It's only possible because you had this new currency, which the world has never had before. I say never. Of course, it's had paper currency before, but never for very long. It always blew up very quickly. But this hasn't blown up, to the surprise of many people. It's still going strong, and people still have faith in it. And because they have so much faith, uh, they are willing to borrow. And now you see borrow and lend. And you see the government of Japan, with a 10-year note, that has a coupon of it at about you know 0.43%, which is ridiculously low. And government of Japan is just it's an impossible situation where it's sure to go broke. It just mm -hmm. has to go broke because it has no way of getting out of this uh, this debt trap it's got. And so this is happening around the world, you're saying? So, it's happening uh, around the world. And, and funnily enough, it's happening most in emerging markets now because for the last few years, most of the money printing... We, we read about the money printing in the U.S., but really it's taking place around the world, and especially in emerging markets. And, and the Bank of China actually has more assets. You know, funny thing, you talk about assets at a bank, you think, well, that's a good thing, right? <laughs> but not at a central bank, because the central bank only gets assets by printing money. They don't have any money, so they, they print money and they buy stuff. And the stuff they buy is always terrible, because it's always government debt, or almost always government debt. And so the Bank of Japan, for example, buys 70% of Japanese government bonds, and last week they announced that they were going to buy 85%. Well, what that means is that they're really printing money to keep the government going. 
And this is no different, really, in essence. This is no different from what the Bank of Zimbabwe did. They, they didn't have enough money, and so they just printed it. And they, you know, that, was a, that was a famous uh, episode, and everybody's heard about it. You know, they, it cost you something like a trillion, trillion Zimbabwe dollars to buy a hamburger even when yeah. you got to the, to the end of it. And the guy running the central bank was a guy named Gideon Gono. And afterwards, they asked him, well, what were you thinking? <laughs> why, why were you printing so much money? Didn't you see that that would be disastrous? And Gideon Gono said, well, what a choice that I had. The government had to, had to pay its bills. Mm-hmm. And that answer is the same answer that Greenspan gave. And if you went back and asked the, the generals in World War II or from Germany, well, what were you thinking? You know, you'll never win the war. Why didn't you just retreat and call it over, call it off? And then, you know, they would say the same thing. Well, what cho- choice did I had? I had to continue to do my duty. And so everybody does the duty, and, and, and everybody goes, uh, you know, down the drain together. <laughs> that's what Armageddon is. Well, that's, that's good news. Very good. Yeah, uh, very. We're going to take a break <laughs> and come back for more. Uh, my guest this half hour, this hour is uh, Bill Bonner. Uh, he's just come out with a new book called Armageddon. Uh, how Too Much of a Good Thing Leads to Disaster. Uh, he's also the editor of The Diary of a Rogue Economist. And we'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. If you want to know about investing in emerging and frontier markets, or if you have experience in this field but still need to know more, tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Gavin explores news, current trends, and insights about both categories of investing. His guest experts, along with his own knowledge, will help you stay above the line when it comes to growth potential, whether in funds or equities. He will look at what to invest in and avoid. Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m. 10 Central every Sunday. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Bill Bonner. He's the chairman at Agora, and his, uh, he's the editor at the Diary of a Rogue Economist. You can find out more about that at diaryofarogueeconomist.com. His new book is called Hormageddon, How Too Much of a Good Thing Leads to Disaster. Welcome back to the show, Bill. Thank you. So let's get into the book a little bit. You start off by saying too much information is one of the problems. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, 
the information, you know, what, remember the dot-com uh, bubble? Yes. Well, the, the thing behind the dot-com bubble was a theory, and the theory was that if we had more information, then we would all save we would all be a lot richer. And so you didn't need to save money anymore because now information would replace money. And now that the Internet was working the way it was, there was information all over. It was at the tip of your fingers. And now you give the, an Internet connection to some poor person, and theoretically, you know, they would have all the information they needed to get rich. But it doesn't work that way at all. Information is not necessarily a good thing. It, you need certain information at certain times. And if you have any other information, then it just, it just falls on you like a burden. And I think I made the, you know, imagine that, Napoleon, when he's leaving Moscow and is starting to snow and his men are freezing and starving, suppose you had given him the formula for a nuclear bomb. What mm-hmm. good would that do? It would be totally useless. And that's mm-hmm. true of almost anything. You could have given him, given him uh, Berkshire Hathaway's accounts, <laughs> or you could have <laughs> given him a stock tip. You know, it wouldn't make any difference at all. Information itself is not a good thing. It's almost a bad thing because you have to store it. You have to sort it. And the more you have, the more time you have to try, spend trying to figure it out. What, what, and what so now there's, information there's, do you really need? There's so been even more of an exposure. not a good thing. There's been even more of an explosion of information lately with uh, all these data analysis and these data centers created all the time. So is this making the problem worse? Is we, we're now going to be tracking people every moment and storing their credit card numbers and all these things. This is making the whole situation worse as far as too much information? Well, it has a very pernicious side to it, which is that you take that information as a whole, the information is worthless because it's so much, too much information to deal with. But when you collect information on everybody, it just means that you have power over, over everybody because you can find something in, in, you know, in any fact set, you can find something that, that looks bad, whether it's bad or not, I don't know. But, but uh, that, that's a whole different thing, you know, that, that kind of collection. Yeah. Then your next chapter is what you call too much economics. What do you mean by that? Well, the whole theory of this book, by the way, is is an economic idea, which is the declining uh, marginal utility, the idea of declining marginal utility, that when you... You, almost everything is subject to that law, and that law tells you that a little bit of something is good, but a lot of it not necessarily so good. And when you more of it you get, the more harmful it is, like information. And that's true of money. You know, that's typically true of money. People, a little bit of money you need. You've got to eat. You've got to have a place to live and something. But as you get more money, then each additional dollar you get is worth less to you. And you can see how that would be. Suppose you gave a million dollars to Warren Buffett. It wouldn't mean anything to him. Wouldn't mean he's got $60 billion, and a million dollars wouldn't mean anything. But if you found a bum on the street and gave him a, a million dollars, it would totally transform his life. So that's the principle of declining marginal utility, and that's true in for the the study of economics, because economics, if you study economics really and you think about it and study the old economist Adam Smith and so forth, you learn quite a lot. I mean, they were, they were people who sat down and thought about how an economy actually works, and that is very, very useful. But 
Now, the more you study economics, the less you know about economics because you get into upper, you know, higher education and economics is mostly wrong. You know, they're studying and believing theories that are mostly, mostly not right at all. And you see them all, all practically every economist today who holds an important post at a modern central bank, they were all schooled in the same theory, and that theory was essentially wrong. But it's very convenient. I mean, <laughs> it's. You know, economics is uh, like everything else. People find something in it that's useful to them. And it was very useful to economists to believe what wasn't true, what isn't true. And they have a whole whole set of theories and assumptions, everything based upon ideas which are really, really not right. So you're saying that the basic thing that they're believing that's not true is that printing money and printing uh, to, to support the government spending is ultimately going to work out well? Is that the basic well, thing no, that, that they got wrong? That's not the basic thing. The basic thing is that they can that they can digitize the world into set, a certain set of numbers which they can use to then control things. You know, they find, for example, the unemployment rate, and they you know the the policy with which the Fed. You know, added something like two trillion dollars to its balance sheet and totally transformed the the economics and the financial situation of America was based upon a number, actually two numbers. One of those numbers was the unemployment rate, and. What was that number? What did it mean? What is really behind it? When you start looking into it, you find it's totally fabricated. The unemployment rate really doesn't mean what we think it means, and it only it's just a set of assumptions that are made, and they change the assumptions just a little bit, and the whole thing falls apart. Unemployment, like so many other things, is not subject to precise calculation, because you can ask you you know you you run into a bum on the street and you say, I'll, I'll give you some money if you'll do such and such. And, you know, he, he may be totally unemployed, but he may not want that job. <laughs> you know, yes. his job depends on the details of it. How much are you going to pay me? What do I have to do? How hard will it be? And, you know, what else do I have going on? I was thinking about going out and watch a ball game today. All of those things are not subject to numerical digital calculation, not precise anyway. And so these things that they use are statistical. And the, the one I like to focus on most the, the GDP because that's the one that's the one that uh, that is going to be is used most in calculations that GDP number is totally baloney it's totally baloney and there was an article in the it's in the book but there was an article in the uh, New York Times about this guy it was fascinating really this guy was uh, in New York he was uh, he was about 55 years old he was he was uh, found to have lung cancer, and, he, and the doctor told him he had about two, two months to live. So he, his family had come from Greece, so he said he found that to get buried in New York would cost him like $2,500, whereas in Greece it would only cost $500. So he said, well, heck, I'm just going to go back to my homeland and die. Well, he got back to Greece. And he moved in with his parents. The whole thing is just from start to finish with totally confounded economists because he didn't spend any money. He didn't spend any money on treatment. He didn't spend any money getting a new house or sell. He didn't, he didn't die, first of all. <laughs> he didn't die at all. He got better. And he was out at, you know, he, he started gardening at his parents' house. He started making wine. In the evening, they would push back the tables and all dance until midnight and everything. Well, this went on. He lived to be 100 years old. Something like this. I can't remember the details. Uh-huh. But, 
but the economists were totally upset because he he didn't do any of the things that would have contributed to to a good economy. He didn't right. die. No, the Undertaker got no no money. The mortician <laughs> got no money, and the, I mean, the the hospitals got no money. He didn't build a new house. He didn't buy a house. He didn't get any furniture. He didn't do anything that would stimulate an economy. But here he lived to be like a hundred years old and had a great time, great life. And the economists would say, well, that's a total failure. (laughs) He didn't want to contribute to the economy. I mean, the classic view today would be the Federal Reserve, faced with a crisis in 2008, had to do something dramatic to stimulate the economy. So they flooded the system with money. We created about $4.5 trillion in the balance sheet. Uh, That was quantitative easing. That pushed down interest rates, pushed down unemployment, recovered the housing market, made the stock market boom, brought down interest rates with long-term bonds, now the economy is in good, good shape, and they're able to stop quantitative easing. It's like taking the training wheels off of the bike, and everything is fine going forward. So it all worked. That would be kind of the traditional view. What would you say about that? Well, good luck with that. I mean, they, got, they put all this... I mean, what, if you put enough money into a system, you can get a reaction. There's no doubt about that. But you don't, it, but you don't know what the long-term consequences are. You know, in order to do that, they had to add $3.6 trillion to the Fed balance sheet. Again, that sounds like a good thing, but it's not. It means they printed up that, that amount of money. They added that amount of money to the system, and that amount of money did not go all through the system. It went to particular places, namely people who own stocks and, to a lesser extent, people who own real estate. And so they distorted the whole economy. And so people, st- companies, for example, stopped investing in fixed capital because they started buying back shares and they started doing all kinds of financial things because the financial things were more, more profitable. And when you distort an economy like that, you're going to have trouble because the whole system depends upon honest prices, honest prices for stocks and honest prices for goods and services. And on those basis of those prices is how people decide whether it makes sense to invest in something, build a new factory, hire more people, buy something, whatever it is. And once you distort all those prices, everybody starts making mistakes. And the classic mistake they make is trying to is paying too much for assets. And we see that now on Wall Street. We see prices are high. They're high because the companies report very good earnings. Well, the earnings have been boosted up by some huge factor, nobody quite knows how much, by by very, very low interest rates. The Fed distorted interest rates. So now companies are reporting profits based upon based upon these low interest rates. And in fact, almost all, I don't say all, but almost all of the the increase in profitability and the increase in the in the uh, PE ratios has come about because of these distortions. Because the Fed has pumped there've been several studies on this and the latest one came out I think about 2 days ago from JP Morgan and it showed that all of that all practically all of the stock market profits of the last five years are, can be directly traced to the Fed action. Well, they say, well, that's a good thing, but it's not a good thing. It means that, it means that the, whole pro- the whole economy has been distorted. So it's and an asset later, bubble. You've got to pay effect, for that. You're saying it's an asset bubble that the Fed has created in effect. Absolutely. It's an asset bubble, and like all asset bubbles, it pops. And when it pops, then people feel terrible and, things, and bad things happen. You know, so, they've done uh, this. But, we're not the first people to try this. You know, Japan is ahead of us in this, and they've been ahead of us for like 20 years. They've yeah. tried QE. They tried fiscal stimulus. They tried everything. And you could say, yes, they prevented a Great Depression, too. So they were successful, right? 
Mm-hmm. Well, what kind of success is that? Where every year they're building up more and more debt. No, the economy does not take off. The economy never grows fast enough to actually pay down the debt. So the debt gets higher and higher, and the Bank of Japan is forced to take more and more aggressive positions. And that's what we're finding in, in uh, well, we're finding in Japan. We haven't found it here yet, <laughs> but we probably will. So what what is the tipping point where you just can't keep adding debt when the the creditors aren't willing to accept the debt anymore? Is that what the tipping point is? Well, that's the sign of it. Nobody knows when it is, but uh, at a certain point, people people begin to say, "Gee, I don't think I'm going to get paid back," and they don't want the debt anymore. And interest rates begin to creep up. You know, it'll be a strange, strange world where interest rates don't creep up because the interest rate cycle's been with us for you know like thousands of years. As long as there have been interest rates, there have been cycles of interest rates, and. All of our, our, this whole economy that we have, the whole financial system, the asset pricing and everything, depends now on interest rates, which are very, very low. If those interest rates rise, there's no doubt that asset prices will fall. There'll be a big calamity because you can't finance all the, all the uh, debt that you've got with, uh, without having very, very low interest rates. So the system depends now on something that can't possibly continue. Yeah. We haven't. Okay. Well, these people who are saying that it's a great success, you know, they're just not. They're taking too short a view. Just wait. It's not possible that it's a great success. Now, the only way it could possibly be a success were if the if the uh, Fed actions had stimulated so much growth that we could now pay down the debt, and that hasn't happened anywhere. No. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Bill Bonner. Uh, he is the editor of the Diary of a Rogue Economist, which you can find out about at diaryofarogueeconomist.com. His new book is called Hormageddon, How Too Much of a Good Thing Leads to Disaster. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m. 10 Central every Sunday. 
Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Bill Bonner. He's the chairman at Agora Research. He's also the editor of The Diary of a Rogue Economist. And his latest book is called Hormageddon. How Too Much of a Good Thing Leads to Disaster. Welcome back to the show, Bill. Thank you. Now that we've got people really freaked out about all of this, let's talk about solutions a little bit. Say exactly what you say is going to happen. The, the, the bubble, really the asset bubble, is going to continue to grow until it doesn't. Uh, how does one prepare yourself as far as allocating assets uh, so that you don't get wiped out when this thing uh, all blows apart? Well, I think it's important to understand that... that uh, the, the period we grew up in, I say we, I'm talking about myself mostly, uh, was dominated by our credit expansion. And that was the one big, big thing which was both large and different from every other period I can think of because the credit uh, markets, you know, they bottomed out uh, in, the, in uh, the bonds peaked out in about 1949. And since then, we have had rising credit almost all the time. There's scarcely been a single year. In fact, I don't know if there has been a single year except maybe 2008 when, the, when credit uh, declined. And so another way of looking at it is we've all been living on, and uh, you know, I looked at how much, the, the, uh, how much credit had expanded, and typically before, say, 1980, credit was always about 140%. Total credit was about 140% of GDP. And then it started going up and up and up and up. And uh, now it's at 350%. (laughs) That's a big This is on a global basis. You're talking about the U.S. or globally? You're talking U.S., U.S. U.S. And that difference is about $33 trillion. So Mm -hmm. it's about a trillion dollars per year has been spent since, say, 1980 to today and uh, beyond what we've earned and beyond what the traditional relationship of credit to earnings is. And that's and so mostly in the government really sector? Live during this time, our adult lives, our, all of our lives have been spent in this rather strange period. And so it's hard now for us to imagine that, that anything could be different because this, this is the world we know. And the world we know is a world where stocks might go down, but then they go back up. And that world, I think, is a world that's about to change, where we're going to go through a real credit at some point. I don't know exactly when, but at some point we're going through a real credit deflation, in which, at which point stocks will go down and they won't go back up. And they may not go back up again in our lifetimes. We could be looking at a period of, say, 20 years, even longer, where stocks, like in Japan, stocks went down in 1989. They've never gone up. They've never gone back up, and this is so saying, This is what happens when you get into this real credit deflation. So you're saying that what happened in 2008 was almost like a preview 
of what could happen on a much bigger uh, scale. Because that oh, was exactly. Yeah, exactly. That was not the end. That was just the beginning. And it was yeah. the beginning because we didn't get a real real uh, deleveraging. We talked about deleveraging, and households did deleverage. But the average business or government did not deleverage at all. In fact, the overall leverage is higher now than it was then. I mean, the argument back would be on the business side that businesses are flush with cash right now. They've got over $2 trillion in cash. A lot of it's being held overseas, and domestically they've got more cash than they know what to do with, which is why they're buying back stock and doing dividends. That consumers, uh, credit card debt has not been going up, student loan debt maybe, but mortgages have not been going up that much because it's hard to get mortgages. And then the government, it's up to about $18 trillion in debt, but the amount of the deficit, the amount at which we're increasing the debt, has been slowed dramatically, and state governments are in much better shape than they were before. That would be the argument back against you. Yeah, some of that's just wrong because, for example, uh, corporate debt, you say corporate corporations have a lot of cash. Yeah, they have a lot of cash, but, but a lot of that cash they got by borrowing. Their net, net debt or net cash is lower. Their net debt is mm. higher by a mm. big, big, you know, they're the, they're the second biggest borrowers after government. And government still, you know, we, people say how the government is borrowing a smaller percentage, but it's still a big, big number, and it's going to go back up. You know, these things were, we've seen, it seemed to, it was a trillion, it went down to 600, and now down to 500. Well, big deal, 500 billion dollar deficit's a big deficit, and it's scheduled to go back up in the future. I just saw something in the paper just uh, last week said that the average life expectancy now for somebody my age, I'm 66, is now 20 years. And uh, that's two years greater than the last time they did the calculation. And though that adds about 7% to the liabilities of the typical pension fund. Well, add 7% to the liabilities of Social Security, and what do you get? You get a huge bankruptcy. You know, they already are, are running on a, at a deficit. The, the total for the U.S. government, the, on a gap basis, that has total uh, liabilities of $212 trillion. That's gap. That's not the way they report mm-hmm. it, but that's the way they should report it. And mm-hmm. so you take 7% of that, and you're adding another $16 trillion just in the last, uh, last week to those uh, liabilities. There's no way that they can be reasonably reasonably paid, so the system is going to go bankrupt. You have a chapter in your book on health care. Uh, as people live longer and use more health care, what's going to happen to Medicare and Medicaid, the systems that are supporting that now? Well, it's the same thing. I mean, they can't, they can't continue to add benefits like this because you, you, can, you can put the cost onto the future, but sooner or later the future comes, and then you've got to do something. And a lot of people say, well, that's no problem because when we get to that stage, we'll cut. We'll just cut back on the benefits, or we'll raise the retirement age, and some of that will happen. But if it's a real Armageddon situation, which I think it is, you can't, because then you get into that pattern where you have too many people who are retired, and they're not going to allow you to cut benefits. There are too many people in the health system, and they, they vote, and they're not going to go for a cut, cut in, in, uh, in, in, in so, so then what, what happens if they, they don't want to cut benefits, the money isn't there? Let, let's just take Medicare as a specific example, because there you have more and more, I think it's like 10,000 people a day are yeah. going on to the Medicare rolls, um, and the taxes aren't, and you have fewer people employed, so you have fewer people contributing. Um, what is the specific outlook for Medicare? Well, I don't know about specifically for Medicare, but you could just look at Japan and you see what happens. Sooner or later, the government cannot afford all these benefits that they've got. And so they have to, they have, to have a big deficit. And Japan spends now 40 
cents for in addition for every dollar it collects in taxes. I mean, that's a bad situation. Well, where does that money come from? Because the Japanese people now retiring are not net savers like they were. The savings rate's gone down. So what happens? Well, the government, the Bank of Japan prints the money. That's why you get this crazy, this system, this is a dead-end street, but nobody's going to get off the dead-end street until you get to the end of it. And I think the U.S. is getting there, too, where we'll be in a situation where the only recourse is for the central bank to print the money needed to pay the government expenses. They won't have now, Everybody says that, that when that happens that you get inflation, and yet everybody says we're in a deflationary environment now. In fact, the central banks say they want more inflation. They're not able to get inflation up to only 2%. Why is it we're not getting inflation when all these central banks are printing so much money around the world? Well, we're fundamentally in a very weak economy. This is the Japanese syndrome where the government has been trying for years to get above above 2% inflation, and they can't do it. They can't do it because people don't want to borrow, people don't want to, don't want to spend, and that's what's happened. You get an older economy, an older population. You get a fundamentally deleveraging. The U.S., you know, the household sector is still in deleveraging mode, and, and companies don't want to invest. That was a comment I made earlier on because they don't see any future in it. So you don't get any big uptick. We're in a fundamentally in a deflation, in a deleveraging mode, and the government's fighting it with everything it can. And the long, of course, this works to its benefit because now it can finance because these rates are so low. The government can finance huge. Spending programs. This is exactly what happened in Japan. It has happened for the last 25 years, and I think we're seeing the same thing in Europe. It's more in Europe than in America. America is the best, the the lightest, the brightest bulb on the porch is America, but it still is, it's locked into the same syndrome. So talk about Europe a little bit because they have an older population than we do, and their economies are not at all strong. And in many cases, they have kind of socialist governments that have all kinds of public spending and social spending and so on. What is the future of uh, the Europe economic situation? Well, it's the same thing. It's, we're all becoming Japanese. And we're becoming Japanese because our populations are getting older. People are more reluctant to spend. There are too many controls, too many regulations. It's hard to get a job. I lived in Europe for 15 years, and I remember talking to this guy who was about my age. He, you know, he got out of school in maybe in the early 70s, and he said back then he could walk down the street and get a job in five minutes. It was all easy, and you spend enough money. You, you, you spent the money you got, and you had some left over, and you could buy a car and so on. Those were the 70s that I recall, too. It was a different kind of life. And you, but now, now everything is so controlled that first you can't get a job, and the youth unemployment in some places like Greece and Italy is like 40 50%. In France, even, it's like 19%, I think. But uh, that's what happens. For, you, you know, as you get more and more control over more and more aspects of the economy, more and more people want their little piece of it. And the trade unions are organized, the school, the teachers are organized, the military is organized. All these organized groups make sure that uh, they close ranks to keep their piece of the pie. And that means young people who are coming into the system, they find it very hard to find a door open because all the doors have been closed. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's yeah. And the economy but, slows down, and you can, and gradually you can't afford all those benefits that you've given to all these special groups. And so again, historically, in a similar kind of situation, what has happened when too many promises are made and not able to be kept? 
Well, uh, a good example of that is was France during before the revolution. In France before the revolution, if you traveled from say Orléans to Paris, you know, you would pass through about five people taking tolls. Everybody had a little had a little niche and everybody had a right to do this, a right to that. You need stamps, you had to pay taxes on everything. And some groups were were exempt. The uh, the nobility were exempt from taxes. So you had a lot of people who had to pay a lot of taxes and a lot of controls and the guilds were very strong and everything was totally screwed up by years and years of offering these special privileges to everybody and eventually it just fell apart. People were sick of it. They got to, and a revolution broke out. And something like that always happens. No, you know, you get creative destruction eventually. You get a system that goes bankrupt then something arises from the ashes and you hope that's a, a period of relative uh, relative uh, nonviolent uh, change evolution but you but not always <laughs> probably not in this case yes very good all right we're going to take a break uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show uh, my guest this hour is Bill Bonner he's the chairman of Agora Research he is also the editor of a newsletter called the Diary of a Rogue Economist which you can get at diaryofarogueeconomist.com his latest book is called Hormageddon how too much of a good thing leads to disaster. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What does conscious leadership mean to you? It unites organizations instead of dividing them. By exploring commonly-based business challenges, it guarantees an increase in your bottom line. Tune in to Minding Our Business, Creating a Spiritual Economy with your host, Nadine Rogers. Each week, we'll hear from business leaders and learn from their strategies. We'll talk about personal and organizational best practices that you can learn from, and we'll hear from you. Minding Our Business airs live Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Bill Bonner. He's the chairman at Agora Research. 
the editor of The Diary of a Rogue Economist, and he's the author of a new book called Hormageddon, How Too Much of a Good Thing Leads to Disaster. Welcome back to the show, Bill. Thank you. So now we've got the economic situation pretty clear. Let's talk about solutions a little bit. So uh, basically, we're in this huge asset bubble worldwide, all the central banks kind of pumping it up with printing of money. At some point, uh, it can't be printed up anymore. So how does one prepare oneself for, as you say, the coming Hormageddon? Well, there are a lot of different levels of preparation. One is, one is you have to uh, find a life that you like. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to, you don't get carried away. And uh, like some people I know, they move to a, you know, an island off in the Caribbean or something and try to protect themselves and they kind of go a little crazy because they're so isolated. But you need to find a lifestyle that you like and you have to make sure that, that it will not be overly affected by wild, volatile changes in the economy. I, I also spend a lot of time in uh, Argentina, which I like a lot, because these people have lived through these crises periodically, and about every 10 years there's some huge crisis, some financial crisis in Argentina. And, you know, they, they have a kind of a rolling Armageddon there. <laughs> every 10 years they have a disaster. But they know how to deal with it, and they keep a lot of cash. And then they try to keep dollar cash and usually keep dollars stashed away somewhere because they don't trust the peso, which has been good because the peso rate of inflation is about 30%. And they buy houses. You know, they tend to own their houses outright. They don't have mortgages because there's no mortgage credit. And they own things. You know, they'll, they'll go out and buy a car because they'd rather have the car than have their money deflated. And the typical mm-hmm. taxi driver is pretty pretty careful about this you know they'll they'll buy things they want to own property cars whatever it is when they see the crisis coming they immediately want to get rid of currency and have things that they want so, so you think that would happen here then that real estate values would go up and physical assets would go up in value well, I don't know about going up in I think physical assets will go up in paper terms which is what you want Mm-hmm. It'll, keep, it'll keep you safe from inflation. Real estate values, I doubt, will go up because there's too much mortgage credit in the U.S. And when the mortgage, when when you get a, a real crisis, mortgage credit goes away, and then you then you see what things are really worth depending upon what people can come up with cash. In Argentina, you go into a a property settlement, you come with a paper bag full of cash. It's a paper bag because you don't want to attract attention. (laughs) Anyway, that's a different world down there. But I think we'll see elements of that in the U.S. too. From a financial standpoint, what you want to do is own companies at a good price that produce benefits, produce things that people will want even in a crisis situation. And you don't want to own, I don't think you want to own, you know, like uh, Jeff Kuhn's balloon dog sculpture, which is worth, you know, sold at $58 million. You want to own things that people are really going to want. They're going to want to eat sausage, and they're going to want to drive cars, and they're going to want to live in apartments, and all the basic goods and services that are required in a modern economy. And so if you can get a company that does that, and you can own it, and it's responsible, and it has some integrity, that's a good thing to own. And locally, mm-hmm. if you find an apartment building with it, which has good tenants, and, and you can get a good return on your money, that's a good thing to own. So there are a lot of things like that. And, and, and how, would, um, yeah. how, how would precious metals do in a situation of what you're talking about? Well, precious metals been are, are protection terribly. against, yeah, they're protection against monetary inflation. So everybody... Because the central bank is supposed to own gold, and that gold is its basic uh, basic cash. It's the thing that protects our money supply. But now, 
you can't trust the central bank, so you have to own your own gold. And every everybody should have some gold, some of it just for savings. In fact, I think people, when they save money, they ought to save gold rather than uh, dollars. Because when you save gold, you get a coin, for example, and you take the coin and you put it in a safe deposit box. And it's a very good savings because, first, over the long term, it doesn't lose its value. And also, it's very hard to get rid of it because you won't want to go to the safe deposit box, get the coin out, then go back to a deal and exchange it for dollars. So it's a better form of savings simply because it's harder for you to get your money out. And lately, gold's been doing terrible as the dollar has been soaring, and people think this is, you know, gold could plunge dramatically from where it is today based on all the deflationary trends we've been talking about. Yeah, gold is priced in dollars. So when dollars go up, gold will go down. But gold is basically priced about where it ought to be. I saw a study very recently that showed, uh, showed what I had concluded myself. You know, you can take uh, you just go back and figure out how much it would have cost you to buy a new car, say, in 1933, and how many gold coins you would have needed. Well, I did that, and I found, you you know, it's about the same today. Gold at about $1,000, $1,200, 1500 that's about where gold ought to be in order to have the same purchasing pr- power that it's had for, like, the last 2,000 years. And so gold is not an investment. I don't urge anybody to buy gold as an investment. It's just a way of holding cash. It's what it's supposed to be. It's a, it's a store of value, and it's a pretty good store of value. And since it's not overpriced now, I think it makes it a good thing to, to save. And so everybody, all of your listeners should have some gold because you might need it. And you might need some small coins, too, because you don't know what shape or you don't know how severe the crisis will be when it comes. In Argentina, they've had all kinds of crises. And sometimes the money system just locks up, you know, where you can't go to an ATM machine. They don't work anymore because you know, yep. something's gone wrong. And you need some form of cash and small coins are your best bet, small gold, precious coins, gold and silver. And you think there are some bargains out there in some of the depressed economies in in Europe and Russia? Tell me about those. Yes, Yes. I think in Italy and Greece, to name a couple, you have to be, you know, you have to know what you're doing, unfortunately. I think Russia is a very good buy. You know, the the price earnings ratio of Russia is like five. It's about the lowest in the world. And there's some very good companies in Russia. You know, people, people say, well, oh, no, Russia's got so many problems. It's got all those, uh, those sanctions and everything. But these prices reflect those things. So, so when you buy a company at five times earnings, you're already, it's already marked down because of those things. And it will only go down further if things get worse. And, you know, I don't know how much worse they could get, get for Russia, but I know they could get a lot worse for Japan and America and Europe. So... Russia, to me, seems like a good buy. So, so you would buy stocks like all over or, the world. Would you buy an ETF of Russian stocks, or how would you take yeah, advantage of the bargains? Yeah, I, I would. I, uh, I'm not. You'd have to do some pretty serious stock analysis to figure out which company to buy and which company not to buy, and it'd be way beyond me. You, you need a very serious Russian stock analyst. In about two minutes we have left, just kind of sum up, uh, particularly with your book, Armageddon, what people should take from that and how their attitude should be different about the economy going forward here. Well, I think people should understand that we live in a very strange time. What we take for ordinary is not ordinary. We take it for, for granted that credit can expand and expand, that people can spend money that they never earned, never saved, that nobody ever made. They, people take it for granted that that world is a world that we can live in forever, and it's not true. That's a world that's very rare, extremely exceptional in historic 
terms. I mean, I don't, there's no there's no comparison, and so and theoretically it can't can't exist. And by from our experience, we know it won't. It never has. And uh, something is going to go bad with that world. How bad? Nobody knows. When? Nobody knows. But you have to be prepared for that. And, and being prepared means trying to keep it real, as they say, trying to get invest in real things, as many real things as you can, and trying to avoid things that may disappear in a crisis. Very good. Well, thank you. We've got a good warning now. We'll see what, how it actually unfolds here. Uh, right. My guest during the show has been Bill Bonner. Uh, he is chairman of Agora Research. Uh, his newsletter is called Diary of a Rogue Economist, which you can get at diaryofarogueeconomist.com. His new book is called Hormageddon, uh, How Too Much of a Good Thing Leads to Disaster, which you can get at Amazon, and also it is linked at his uh, diaryofarogueeconomist.com website. So thanks so much for being on the Money Answer Show, Bill. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right, thanks bye. again, and we'll be back with another edition of the Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Bye. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See-